Hey guys, it's Clay Reichenbach, and I want to welcome you all to the final Examined Athlete episode of the year. And trust me, it's a great one to be ending the year on. But before I get into it, I want to let you all know that I will be taking a break from releasing episodes over the holidays and well into January as I take some time to be with my family and work through some exciting improvements to the platform. During the break, I do plan to post consistently to Instagram, giving you some of my takeaways from most, if not all, of our episodes thus far. The goal is to cover a bit about how each episode came together, and then share some of my takeaways, what I learned from each conversation. Make sure you follow at Examined Athlete on Instagram to hear those stories, and please, please give me your feedback along the way. I'd love to hear what you took away from each episode, what you learned from each guest, and even what you disagreed with. I'd love to hear your thoughts and your feedback, so please share. Now on to today's episode. Today, my guest is John Edward, or better known as Carbon Fiber John. John is a military veteran, he's an amputee, he's an adaptive athlete, he's an Olympic hopeful, a motivational speaker, and as we'll cover extensively in this episode, he is first and foremost a human being. John agreed to sit down with me and walk through his journey with pretty much complete honesty. He agreed to open up and methodically walk through some of the most difficult moments along his journey, and I could not be more grateful for his vulnerability. John's story has given him the perspective to add value to conversations across an incredibly wide spectrum, and we hit upon many of those conversations in this episode. We covered his time in and out of foster care as a child. We covered addiction, sexual abuse, anger and resentment, drugs, gangs, sexuality, suicide, violence, as he explains how he used all of those experiences to find his true purpose of helping and healing others. John has an incredible story, and I think it's really just beginning. John, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your honesty. Thank you for your vulnerability. I will certainly be eagerly watching your story and your journey as you continue to grow and influence others. And I really enjoyed sharing this conversation with you and playing a small part in it. Ladies and gentlemen, the human being, Carbon Fiber John Edward. I'll just start by saying, John, I'm glad we got to finally do this because it's an honor to have you, man. I know we're going to cover some weighty, powerful moments in your life, and that's not lost on me. So I appreciate it. I'm grateful for your story, and I I really think it's going to help a lot of people, and I know that's one of the things you're after. So thank you so much for being here just to start, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we get into your journey, because I definitely want to walk through the obstacles you've overcome, or maybe a better way to say that is the obstacles you've put your shoulder down and ran through and you just knocked on their ass. But before we do that, I'd like to know why you chose sport as your vessel. You're a talented guy. I know you well enough 
to know that you could have chosen a number of paths, a number of platforms, but you chose sport. And so what is it about sport or competition or fitness that drew you to this particular path? So sport for me, what started, I would say that the beginning was misguided because I thought that it proved how strong I was as a person. I thought that winning was what defined you as a person, but essentially now dissecting it, what looks to be why I chose sport is the whole team aspect behind it. I never played sports as a kid. I spent more time actually focusing on where I was going to live and, you know, my living situation and if I was going to eat for the day. So when I look back now, honestly, I had always been looking for a tribe and in sport, whether it was coaching or even now as a professional athlete, that's honestly what drives me to continue doing it. I love that you already see that it's beyond sport. I wanted to tell you this story from the start before we really get into your story. The first time you and I met was at a class graduation for the Adaptive Training Foundation. And when I attended that graduation, John, I brought a young boy with me who is on his own journey with mental health struggles. And I brought him for that purpose. And we walked into the gym that morning. We didn't know anybody. We'd never been to the facility. And within about 60 seconds, this jacked one-legged Marine walks up to us with a big smile on his face and welcomed us. More importantly, John, you looked at this young boy in his eyes, you started asking him questions, you shook his hand, and you had a genuine interest in his answers. And I say all that because sport's great. All your physical attributes are great, and we'll cover those things. Your athletic success is going to give you a platform to spread your message. But in my eyes, it's your willingness to walk up to a stranger, to welcome a young boy, that's going to help you move mountains. It's that that's going to separate you. And I don't really have a question there other than just to thank you for that moment and point out that I really think that's where you separate yourself. I appreciate that. So that's honestly what started my coaching career was I honestly didn't struggle like most individuals leaving the service because I went from being a Marine Corps staff sergeant to a coach at a military institution. But for me, I realized that I could still do the staff sergeant, staff NCO leadership thing outside of uniform. And that's honestly what became such a motivation for me. But I think honestly, yesterday, last night, I have a kid who he plays baseball down at San Diego, had dinner with him. He's the CEO of uh, the Varsity Chronicles. And he asked me how I was able to network so well with individuals. But I think honestly, David Vibora explained it very well. I have an uncanny ability to connect with individuals with everything that I've been through. And I think that that is a unique ability and a unique sense of connection that I never really thought about it coming up and growing up that now I realize, oh, you are a foster kid. Oh, you went through this struggle. Oh, you are an amputee. And I don't like to say check in the boxes, but there's just a lot of attributes of who I am as a person that allows me to relate to someone that is going through something. Absolutely. Well, let's get into your story a bit. I want to start with your childhood because number one, I know that everyone's childhood determines quite a bit about the men and the women that they end up being. But more than that, like I said earlier, I think there'll be plenty of young men and women that are on the path that you were on and that can learn from your story. And your path wasn't paved for you. You had quite the rocky road. So I want to start by just allowing you to describe what life was like for you growing up as a young child. 
So it was, I'll honestly tell you it was rough, but I don't, I never really thought about it. You know, I guess you don't really think about how tough you've got it when you have that kind of resiliency of, of you'll figure it out. Right. So I'm, I'm extremely impressed at my ability to figure it out because that's honestly what got me through my childhood. But essentially what happened. So I know who my biological parents are. I know who my biological family is. Unfortunately, I was sexually assaulted as a kid and my my biological mother was actually involved with alcohol. She was an alcoholic. She was involved with drugs and she was just involved around a lot of men. And social services finally got involved and the state of Maryland actually like pretty much released me on my own. I was like 14 years old and it was kind of rough because so there's a specific movie that actually really relates to my story. And it's like the Mark Wahlberg. He's a foster parent. It's called Instant Family. And what happens is the mother, they're trying to adopt these kids. But unfortunately, the mother keeps getting clean and gets a job right in time for the court date. And then the court's like, oh, look, she's rehabbed. And then they give you back. Right. And then an incident happens and then the children are back in the system. So essentially, that's what happened with me. And there was a pattern and I think the system's broken and I will I will honestly be open about that because I have older biological siblings that went through trauma and abuse from my biological parents, but there were no repercussions or actions taken until my situation happened. And that's when all the kids were removed from the home and they gave me a social worker and they were just trying to figure out what to go from there. But essentially, I've had had is the key word because I, I honestly, as a kid, I had an identity issue. I kept trying to force myself on families. I kept trying to be this gangster kid hanging out with gang members and, you know, hanging out with drug dealers. I was 15 years old in D.C. nightclubs getting drunk and doing drugs like I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And it's essentially for the people that I hung out with. So. I was very, very mature for my age due to the fact that I was just trying to figure out, you know, where I was going to live and what the next step was. So essentially, if you look at the long run, I shouldn't be where I'm at today. And I think that that's what's very powerful about speaking to these children, especially individuals that don't believe. So I live in Annapolis, Maryland, and it's very funny when individuals think that I grew up sailing or they, you know, they see me with individuals who are successful and have these nice homes and they invite me on their boats and they're like, oh, you grew up doing this. And I'm like, Actually, I didn't. I, I had multiple jobs. I've done things for money. So growing up, essentially, pretty much I didn't know at the time was going to develop the person that I became today because there are a lot of things that I went through that honestly, like, sir, I just had surgery 14. And a lot of people are like, how are you so resilient? How are you so motivated? And it's a matter of like, whether I sit here and complain about it, it's not going to change my situation. So when I was a child, I really wasn't thinking about oh, my parents don't love me. Oh, you know, school this or the police officer didn't believe that I was going to do this. It was more of like, what's my next step? And it's always been what my next step was. And somehow, some way, there was a light bulb where I realized that I needed to be, I was going to be bigger than what I was doing. And I decided that I wanted to join the Marine Corps. And that journey alone is is unexplainable because I honestly don't remember what the switch was. I went from skipping school, getting kicked out of multiple schools, getting kicked out of a district of schools to speaking to teachers and being like, hey, I understand that I'm like a year and a half behind school, but I need to graduate in order to go to boot camp. Before we get there, I definitely want to go there, John, but to linger on the childhood, it sounds like you weren't ruminating on what was going on. 
in my eyes, like this unfair roller coaster of emotions between foster care and parent, foster care and parent, which for me, from the outside looking in, I would have thought would have created this hope and let down, hope, let down. But it sounds like you kind of separated yourself from those emotions. And I don't know whether that's good or bad. I'm not, you know, well versed enough to know. Is that kind of what was going on or did you feel that roller coaster? I felt the roller coaster because every every family that I lived with so I lived with probably seven different families and they tried their hardest don't get me wrong to include me as their family but essentially there's a there's a point where you understand that you're not their family and you see a difference of treatment towards other individuals and towards yourself where they are trying to help you but at the end of the day you're not really biologically related to them so I honestly I went through the roller coaster probably until I was about 25 years old and oh wow I was going to ask you, I, I listened to a previous interview you did, John, and one of your quotes for me just kind of drop kicked me in the heart. You used the word chose and you said, my mother chose drugs and men over me. And I lingered on that quote because I don't know enough about addiction to know whether or not that's actually true. But I do know that as a child, you had to believe that. And that has to be insanely difficult do you think that thought had a lot of effect on your outside world, how you were responding with this tough gangster image? Do, how do you think this affected you? So I'll tell you, I'm a psychology major. I actually just finished my bachelor's in psychology. So I will tell you that that now knowing she did not choose, it's it's an addiction. It's part of mental health. It's part of the brain. It's part of how addiction overtakes an individual. But I will tell you that that she preferred going out, doing drugs, having alcohol, you know, having a numerous amount of men in her life really did plant a seed in my head to believe that I wasn't good enough to be fought for. And that's what started the journey of going back to why I chose sports. It was, well, if my biological mother isn't going to show me that I'm good enough, then I'm going to show myself I'm good enough. I'm going to be the fastest, the strongest, the loudest, the most obnoxious, the most belligerent, the most abrasive. That's what planted a seed. And it wasn't until I let go of that that I really honestly started living a peace that I had never felt before. Can you look back at that time, even though you were facing that adversity and find ways that it serves you today? Are there silver linings? Are there traits or things you've learned that you think allowed you to excel and still serve you today? I think everything that I went through honestly helped me excel due to the fact that now I have the ability to really analyze and not take things very personal. I have a friend of mine. His name is David Orana. He's probably the only friend that I have growing up. And he has told me from the beginning that he has always admired how I am able to detach myself from individuals very quickly, no matter how much of a relationship there is. And I firmly believe that that has to do with the looking for a family. You know, I used to force these women that were like mother figures i used to like forcibly be their son and that wasn't the journey like that wasn't their role that wasn't what they were supposed to play they were supposed to be a role model but essentially they weren't supposed to be my mother for the rest of my life so looking back now everything that she did as a person and what i went through as a child honestly till this day even now that i am a well centered and very balanced individual there's still a lot of things where I have tried my hardest not to emotions are deadly, man. Emotions can take over and it can either make you or break you. And some I used to be very angry. I used to be a very angry individual and think of the Hulk. That's essentially what would happen is all this bottled up stuff. 
And then finally, you know, the alcohol and the drugs or some situation where I would just burst and then it would be, you know, hoax smash. And then I would go back and be like, oh, well, you know, it's it's X, Y and Z of what I went through. So essentially, I mean, till this day, I think about things that have occurred that are like, all right, let me step back. Or if I, honestly, what I will tell you is when I start to see patterns of my childhood, it allows me to step back and be like, all right, let's let's recalibrate and let's, you know, go in this direction instead of this direction. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I I actually laughed when I heard you say this. You've always been quite the overachiever. You weren't just kicked out of schools. You were banned from entire school districts. So quite the overachiever <laughs> from a young man. But dur during that time, I know a group of Marines took you under their wing, saw something in you, maybe even began to mentor you in a sense. Explain how that relationship came about and when it came about in your life. So I'll tell you, Clay, I don't understand what individuals saw in me because I honestly was not a person to be around. I was very destructive. I was very angry. And I felt that there were priorities that were different. Um, to me, it was having the fresh new Jordans and the brand new car and people knowing that you were a drug dealer, hanging out with drug dealers was like a status thing. So I honestly don't know what it was that they really embraced and was like, you're going to succeed because they came in full strong. And if you know Marines, like there is no like putting your toes in the water. It was, we're going to mentor this kid and we're going to make sure he goes to the Marine Corps. And it was like from one day to another, they spoke to the superintendent and I was able to actually get into a school in the county, which they had told me I wasn't able to. But unfortunately, this school was like the misfit school of the county. It was like where, you know, they sent all the bad kids at. And they started checking on my attendance. They gave my counselor like their cards and like, hey, let us know if he's skipping. So I remember this one time I was at Chipotle and I was getting lunch. Literally was not skipping school. I was just getting lunch and was going to come back. And Staff Sergeant Ross calls me. He's like, where are you? And I was like, Chipotle. And he like chewed me out. And I had not been used to somebody on top of me because nobody had ever really been like, you shouldn't be, in, you know, you should be skipping school. You shouldn't be, you know, getting bad grades. You shouldn't be fighting. Like there was no real person that did that. This whole recruiting station literally picked me up, dropped me off. I was PTing two or three times a day. If I had homework, I was doing it at the recruiting station. If I was hungry, the recruiters took care of me. I lived in a recruiting station for some time. That was probably the most humbling experience as a you know former staff sergeant in the Marine Corps because I understand that I literally did everything to get into the Marine Corps to be able to achieve what I have achieved now and to be able to develop a different version of myself. And that's essentially what happened when I went to boot camp. That's such an amazing story because from my perspective, this is clearly anecdotal, but that is rare. Those human beings are rare. And maybe that has to do something with the military or something to do with being a Marine. But I've become fascinated in the last few years with what I call influential voices. And I've become incredibly mindful of the importance of influential voices. And the reason for that is because I think it's rare. And I don't think I've always realized the importance of one comment or one conversation, much less what they did. I still, John, at my age, receive what would probably be throwaway comments from people that mean the world to me. And I try to think about those things and I try to give those comments and spend those times, which it sounds like what you're doing. I'll give you an example. I had an Olympian on the podcast early on named Fumi Jamo. And Fumi is an amazing athlete, but we really had a beautiful conversation for an hour about mental health. That's all we really talked about. 
And when she left, she turned around for a moment, John, and she looked at me and she said, I've done hundreds of these interviews throughout my career. I've never done anything like that. I think you have something here. And I bet Fumi doesn't even remember that comment. But for me, I'll never forget it. And it highlights that when someone believes in you, when you maybe don't believe in yourself like you did as a young man, it can change your life or it can at least change the trajectory of your life. And I call that giving someone permission to believe. And I think that at that point in my podcast gave me a a little permission to believe. So can you think of times today where you linger on those moments or you think of voices from your past or today beyond the Marines that gave you that space to believe in yourself maybe when you didn't believe in yourself? I don't think that it's something that resonates like, you know, certain situations happen and then I'm like, oh, this person said this. But I do. I will tell you that I lived a period where it was like I'm self-made and nobody helped me. But in reality, you look back and it's a lot of people help you. And it is those influential voices, whether it's a conversation or whether it's a long term, like individual conversations I continuously have. So I will tell you that I do believe because there was like probably 10% of the individuals in the school district that believed that I was going to become a Marine. The rest of them laughed at me. Like the rest of them were like, no, you're going to get arrested or you're going to do this or you're going to do that. And I believed it. And I will tell you right now, like I honestly never really competed and was content with the bare minimum because that's what my biological parents and situation allowed me to believe because it was like, well, you're not going to be successful. You're not going to be a college graduate. You're not going to make it outside the projects or whatever the case may be. When in reality, you were going back into school and then you had this counselor that was like, why are you acting up? Right. So it was like it wasn't disciplinary for me when I would get into it with a teacher, because something you need to know about me is, yes, I was disrespectful, but it wasn't out of pocket. It was because someone did something towards me. So it was a defense mechanism where in reality you had to have done or said something outlandish to me for me to react to it. It wasn't like I was just showing up to class and flipping tables when I would go into the counselor's office or I would go talk to the specific law teacher that believed in me, they would sit down and be like, why did you react on this manner? Or why are you acting this way? You have so much more potential. And I would say like, oh, dude, nobody in my, you know, nobody went to college or nobody graduated high school where I came from or whatever the case may be, or so-and-so is successful and he didn't have a college degree. And they just engraved in me. And if you look, you know, throughout times in your life, There's certain individuals that, yeah, you may have grasped that where you're like, yeah, I'm not really going to listen to that comment. But there's certain individuals where you're like, okay, that makes a little bit of sense. And I think that that is who I am as a person now, because when I speak to these individuals, whether it's at a collegiate level or a professional level or a high school level, they're in that moment, right? Teenagers go through this phase where you don't, you know, no adult knows best and they don't understand that we went through and, and have already been doing what they're doing. It's not the paragraph of conversation that you have. It may be that certain word or that certain sentence that you say to someone that it may resonate. And it may not be in the moment. It may not be an hour from now. It may not be a week from now. It may be six months from now where you're like, you know what? I had a conversation with John Edward and I remember he specifically saying this. I have said that to numerous Marine or you know officers that I've trained from the Naval Academy or other athletes where a situation occurs And they'll call me back and they'll be like, all right, you were right. How about they took me seriously? Or how about the biggest guy in this gym walked up and shook my hand and was actually interested in my answer? And again, I I just think leaders oftentimes don't realize that two minutes you spent there and took that boy seriously or that 
one comment Fumi decided to stop and turn around and say can mean the world to people. And I like to highlight those things because I think it's rare. And especially when I hear about Marines that went above and beyond, I try to tell my young girls to think about those moments. When you see a bright light and someone call it out, I don't care if you're at Starbucks, call it out. Tell somebody when you see something that you like. Tell somebody when you acknowledge a bright light, a talent, a skill, you like their shoes. And I try to linger on those moments. Well, let's move forward a little bit. We're not going to spend a ton of time on your military career, but you did spend 12 years in the Marines. You excelled at a extremely rapid pace. So what I do want to know is how this troubled youth we've been describing all of a sudden becomes a standout in the Marines and starts surpassing his peers at a rate that really hadn't been seen before. So I think I will tell you, I mean, I still struggled in the Marine Corps play. Like it, I still lived that I need to be better than you. I need to be faster than you. I need to be bigger than you, which honestly still led this toxic ability to still want to like, like I wasn't living a true form in the Marine Corps. Like, did I do some extravagant things? A hundred percent. But there was still there. I was still, I've been battling my whole life. I've been fighting my whole life. And it's something that I'm very good at, whether it's physically or whether it's mentally, I'm a fighter. And I unfortunately had to go through that in the Marine Corps. There was like a toxic, toxic trait from childhood. And then there was a toxic trait from the Marine Corps, right? That just turned into this giant thing of competition. That was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going, what you're saying about me is wrong. You will never be able to bash my name. I don't regret it. Don't get me wrong. I don't ever really regret anything from the past, but I don't believe that it is as healthy and as productive as it is now. My competition now is proving to myself. I am so tired of proving to everyone else that I'm going to make it or that I'm going to, you know, get out of a situation. It was a time to start believing in myself for myself and start to really developing that person and doing competitions strictly for John, not for my parents, not for my Marines, not for my college athletes. And I think that that honestly, I I don't say I would go back and change it because, right, everything happens for a reason. And I think I became the person I am today because of what I went through in the Marine Corps. But I'll tell you, I I fought a lot in the Marine Corps. And it was to a point where I honestly developed this hatred towards the Marine Corps, this hatred towards veterans. And it wasn't until I got to the Adaptive Training Foundation and really started meeting people that loved me for me that I honestly was able to let it go and realize that, unfortunately, some people suck. And like you said, I honestly, I love that you touched on the fact, like if somebody has nice shoes, man, say it to them. If they got a nice haircut, let them know that fate is fresh. Like we live in a world where we forget to be kind. We are living in a time right now in 2021 where like your credibility is whether you're a de Democrat or a Republican, or if you're vaccinated or if you're not. What happened to, hey man, how's your day? And I think that that's the hardest thing for me to understand as a coach and as a mentor is my kids would literally be like, I'd be like, hey, man, what's going on with you? And they'd be like, nothing, coach. And I'm like, all right, so you're going to lie to me? And they're like, oh, just coach, I'm going through X, Y, and Z. Okay, now that you want to be truthful, let's talk about it, right? And then at the end, they think that you're the Superman because you cared and you actually like energy is the thing. And you can sense energy, right? So when 
coaches or leaders, it bothers me when they're like, oh, we didn't know that about our student. Oh, we didn't know that about our athlete. Oh, really? Because you probably didn't know his favorite color. You probably didn't know his favorite food. You probably didn't know where he came from. I had a lot of individuals that I've come into that, like I said, thought that I came up from a wealthy family because of who I hang out with and where I live, that when they started to realize like, hey, dude, I came from the same place that you came up. And they'd be like, what? And then start exchanging stories and there'd be a relatability, right? So no matter what I did in the Marine Corps, let's touch back on I was still not good enough. And that honestly developed this toxic trait of competition. I so appreciate your honesty there because I can empathize with it. I think all high-level achievers can, whether you're a great athlete or a great businessman, whatever. It's easy to fall into a trap of setting poor goals because oftentimes those external drivers can work until they don't. For our listeners, what I was referring to is you excelled up the ranks at a very rapid rate in your 20s. And I did the same thing in business. But I would say I also had my value in the wrong place. It was on financial success as opposed to building a great business or building a great community. But the tricky part is it worked for me. I had a ton of success and it worked for you. And I think that's the importance of these conversations and the importance of leaders like yourself, which you were just alluding to, that take the time to speak to their athletes or whoever about these bigger issues because they'll start to reward you and you'll start to get feedback. You're doing well. You're moving up the ranks. You're making lots of money. But if you have your value in the wrong place, if your goals are set poorly, it's only going to work to it doesn't. And then it ends up ending bad or it's at least a dangerous game to play. So I'm glad you were honest there and brought that up. One of the things that, John, you've been very open and honest with me when we've spoken in the past, but I haven't seen you speak a lot about is your sexuality. And we certainly don't have to spend a lot of time there today. But if you're willing to share, I'd like to know how your experience as a gay man influenced your behavior growing up and how it influenced the way you viewed yourself. What was your self-perception as you grew and how do you think that affected your outward facing behavior? So I think that studying psychology and being super involved in mental health, I will tell you that being sexually assaulted multiple times as a child and as an adult, it plays a major role on my sexuality because there are still situations where I question whether I really am gay or not. And I think that it has to do with a lot of trauma. And no matter how much work you get done or talk about it, it still lingers. But I will tell you, I didn't do anything with a male growing up, right? Because I would have probably been jumped or something with the people that I hung out with. So there was always this fear, right? In the Marine Corps, so what happened was I don't, I didn't really have the opportunity to come out. What essentially happened was I was with him with another individual who was a special operator this who I was with at the time and people found out and I got outed on social media so my space back in the time and there was like 60,000 veterans and marines on this like group called JTOTS and I had just checked into my new unit literally a week later this art not article but it was like a picture and it was like this Marine doesn't deserve to be a Marine. He takes advantage of individuals and, you know, he's a faggot and like just saying a bunch of other stuff. Right. So I checked into this new unit in 29 Palms. And if you know anything about 29 Palms, it's one of the most like alpha male places you can get stationed at. 
and it had already opened up the window to individuals like thought process wise of who I was. So I didn't get an opportunity to show people what I was about and, you know, was he a good Marine or whatever. It was always the faggot Marine. So it did not matter whether I was a staff sergeant at 26 years old. It was always the faggot staff sergeant. It did not matter whether, you know, I got different jobs and was able to do other stuff and, and was in charge. I was a platoon sergeant as a sergeant. It never mattered. It was always the faggot Marine. So for me, what it developed, right? It was this, I just told you, I've been fighting my whole life. So it was more of like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to be the fastest and the strongest. So you can never say that the faggot can't pull you out of a combat zone. I'm going to be good at my job. So you can never say that the faggot sucks at machine guns or sucks at being a tank commander, right? Essentially, it built this toxic thing where like any ounce of like sound that I thought somebody was talking about me, I'd go into the defense. What'd you say? Like, oh, I'll punch you in the face. Oh, I'll do this. So I'll do that. Right. So I just became this belligerent alpha male, right? That just, I was 265 pounds in the Marine Corps, man. People knew who I was. And it was funny because this trip that I went to Florida, I was in a wheelchair due to the situation that I had. And I literally, I, I cannot exaggerate to you, Clay, five different Marines recognized who I was, not from being the athlete, not from being from ATF or all the stuff that I'm doing with the NFL. They recognized me from the gym in the Marine Corps. And it built some sort of anxiety, right? Because I was like, oh, this is not who I am now. Like, this is a past. Are they going to talk? You know, they're going to say like, oh, we know you as the faggot or we know you as the, as the Marine or we know you as the athlete, right? Let's fast forward. I would say my last two years in the Marine Corps, I just stopped caring, but I still had this chip on my shoulder where I was going to prove you wrong and I wasn't going to let you talk, right? So it did not matter whether you were a sergeant major or a general or a colonel, you were not going to disrespect me. And I was known as this like Marine that really did not care. I would tell you how it was. If I heard that you were talking smack, like I was going to put you on blast in front of the whole platoon. So there was this stigma built behind it. Like, oh, this dude, he sucks. He's belligerent. He doesn't respect. He doesn't do anything. But let's backtrack. You guys created this. Nobody defended me. Nobody was there for me to mentor me. Nobody told me that it was okay to be a gay Marine. Nobody told me that it was okay to be gay, right? Instead, people were spreading rumors and telling stories. Like there were so many Marines. I'll tell you right now, like I'm not one to put people on blast, but there were a lot of military service members that were married, had girlfriends and had kids that were hitting me up on DMs on social media or hitting me up on a text message or on a call or I'd run into them at a bar the joke was, oh, another one, right? So there's this idea that there are no gay people in sports, that there are no gay people in, in the military. But I was the bad person because I decided to live my truth and try to develop and realize who I was going to become. And that ended up biting me in the ass, right? Like I, there were several things I didn't get to do and certain situations that they could have been like, you know what, John could be the best fit for this. But instead it wasn't, oh, this is a good Marine for it. It was like, oh, he's gay. He can't do this, right? I finally, honestly, you want my honest answer why I got out of the service? It was for my mental health, man. I was tired of, you're being told that you weren't good enough as a kid, right? Like your foster, your, your parents didn't want you. You're being told that I gave my life to an institution for 11 years and it wasn't good enough because of what I was doing behind closed doors. And the worst part about it, Clay, I've, I strongly believe that if I was a flamboyant gay person, you know, who, who dressed apart, my life would be a lot easier. But because I am the big muscular alpha dude who doesn't quote unquote act gay, that's a threat towards people. 
It's always been a threat. I go places and females want attention from me and I don't give it to them, right? And my friends are like, oh, that's not fair, like blah, blah, blah. That's not my fault. Why is that a threat to me? Friends that I have, you know, female friends that are married, their husbands have said, oh, he's not gay. He's saying that just so he can get closer to you. So there's always been this thing, right, where the part of me didn't want to be gay. One, because I psychologically was like, is this really who I am or is this the trauma from my childhood that I was doing things that I thought was right as a kid? Or is this something that really is a thing, right? But then you look back and you're like, everything that you did, it, it didn't matter because it, there was always this thing. Oh, he's gay. You know, he got promoted. It doesn't matter. He's gay. It's right. So you build this thing of like, do I really want to do this? And then you have this fear where all these Marines and professional athletes are accusing you of taking advantage, quote unquote, right? Or like, oh yeah, I didn't hit him up. Or he, you know, he came at me and it was like, you sit here and you're like, wow, that's really crazy. So you, I lived this thing of, I was like, you know what? I, I had no motivation or drive to meet other people. I've become very, very unemotional. I've become very unsex driven. I honestly only care about my training, eating healthy, sleeping, and spending time around those that love me. But honestly, Clay, if you ever go out with me, you'll really, David Vibor will tell you, like somebody will come up and they'll be like, oh, we think you're attractive. I'm like, okay, cool. And I'll ignore it. To break in and make a couple observations, number one, the fact that you didn't have your opportunity to define your own identity is is heartbreaking. But what I'll say, John, is this is the importance of your voice to have someone like yourself speaking out and sharing your story. And one of the observations I'll make is I can tell you're still working it out. You're still angry about it in a sense. And what I love to show people is that people like Carbon Fiber John, people like Clay, people like David Obora are still on a journey and they always will be. I think a lot of times we lift up these voices and show someone that appears to be evolved or on the other side of it. I think it's important to say, no, I'm still working it out. Here's the path that's worked for me. It may work for you, but I'm willing to speak about it. I'm willing to be authentic. I'm willing to be vulnerable. I'm willing to tell you that I'm still working it out. I'm still questioning because it humanizes you. Because I think a lot of people will get on your Instagram and they'll start seeing you speaking at NFL events and they'll start seeing you interact with celebrities or lifting these enormous weights and they have trouble relating to that. But then you start speaking like you just did for the past few minutes and everyone can relate to that and say, oh, he's still on this journey, but he's willing to speak honestly about it. And I think that's extremely powerful, buddy. Let me ask you this. You talked about responding by being mean and aggressive. I think the last time you talked, you said I was an asshole. <laughs> As I told you earlier, that's not the person I've met. The person I've met comes up with a smile immediately and welcomes a stranger. What events led to that transition? So I got to give thanks to the ATF and my coach, Mo, and you know my mental coach, Mo, and, and David Babora. But honestly, Clay, I've... I've been through something very, very traumatic in the last three years. So my best friend committed suicide in 2018, Lieutenant Leonardi. And this was the guy, I mean, we got matching tattoos and this was the guy that I spent numerous of hours together. And it's tough because I'm actually currently in, in Southern California and every bar that I go to reminds me of him. Like that's how close we were and that's how much, you know, we did stuff. Uh, but I think what helped me with that is I've taken the responsibility of being there for his mother and his grandmother. His mother was actually there for me for my amputation. And 
it's just what keeps his memory alive. And then in 2020, my significant other actually committed suicide also during COVID. And so I think for me, the journey that started all of this is, is mental health. It's I'm tired of, I'm tired of people not thinking it's not okay to be okay, to not be okay. And I think that as men, we've been generated and we we have this thought process that it's not okay to cry, that, you know, men aren't supposed to be emotional, that men aren't supposed to speak about their feelings. But in reality, we're starting to see the aftermath and effect of that thought process where suicide is at a high rate. We just had quarantine due to COVID-19. And I think that that's going to have a larger psychological effect on individuals like children, right? Because it was done at a, at a, at a time in their life where it's a critical point of development, whether it's socially character wise i think my biggest concern was you know those foster kids that were living in homes with abusive parents and they had to be forced to do that so you touched back on it i i really try my hardest to be a nice person i i I, but let's not get it twisted i'm not you know i may be soft at, uh, at meeting and i i may have this giant smile on my face but don't don't come at me sideways because i will let you know how i truly feel about a situation but I just and like you to have be- bad days and good days like everyone else. Yeah, exactly. But the, but the difference, Clay, is I don't believe that I I don't believe that I give myself permission to take my bad days out on people. And I think that that's what we forget. You may have a bad day. That doesn't mean you get to lash out on someone. That doesn't mean you get to curse someone out and say, oh, I'm sorry. It goes back to alcohol, right? Like people black out and they said, oh, I did this. And then they're like, oh, I'm sorry. It was the alcohol. No, that's that is a shitty thought process and it's the same process of having a bad day so for me it's educating individuals you just said it right they may not be able to relate oh this guy's hanging out with nfl players or this guy was at army navy the bunch of you know ceo of gnc and he's hanging out with all these successful individuals but what can you relate to you can relate to the fact that i'm still mourning you know the death of somebody that i love truly i'm mourning the death of my best friend i'm mourning more marines that have committed suicide that i that i have fingers and toes right so for me, the journey was when I walked into the doors of ATF and I realized that it was time for me to be vulnerable, open and open to ideas that I may have been scared to touch on. Right. So once I did that, it was when I realized that the Cowboys had no issues with me being gay and the ATF had no issues with me being gay and former players like Robbie Bryant had no issues with me being gay. David Vibora, you know, all of these successful pro athletes that are now doing other things i wasn't seen as john the gay dude i was seen as john the athlete i was seen as the adaptive athlete the mental health advocate and that's what honestly started transitioning stuff to realize listen those individuals that may have made you feel this way back in the day those aren't the individuals you're dealing with now and now i like i said right we go back to touch to are there certain things people say or whatever there's certain triggers that people try to get me with that I honestly sit back and I'm like, you're not going to get me to act out of character. So I'm just going to go ahead and say goodbye and put you to the side. I don't hate you, but I just really are. Your energy is not just not for me. And I, if there's something that I can tell you that's been part of my journey has been ensuring that my energy is not disrupted. My energy and my peace are more valuable to me than any monetary value thing that I own. And that's because I've realized how important my mental health is. Simone Biles touched on it. Uh, Sully Thomas from the Raiders has a nonprofit called the Defensive Line, and and it's the same thing. He's talking about mental health. Hayden Hurst 
Hayter Hearst Foundation. You have all of these organizations of pro athletes that are starting to speak out and be honest and be vulnerable. Why? Because back in the day, I didn't think that I related to an NFL player. Are you kidding me? I was in 29 Palms being miserable in the heat, making you know less than minimum wage, working 16, eight-hour days while these guys were getting TV screen and time and living the luxurious life, right? But then you sit back and you're like, wow, David Vibora went through you know, an opiate uh, addiction and he went through mental health and you talk to any other pro athlete that I've associated myself with, it's not the relatability of being an athlete. That's not what relates us. And that's what people need to understand that as Carbon Fiber John and, and as this athlete that I've developed myself at, it's not because we sling weights together. That is a key factor, right? It, that's not what the relatability is. The relatability is checking on each other. It's being like, hey, are you okay today? Or being like, hey, man, it's okay for you to think this way. I'm going to give you five minutes to cry, but now it's time to move forward. And I think that the victim mentality is taking over everything. There's a difference between literally going through something and whining. And I think that we've confused that in 2021 where a lot of individuals, it's like, oh, man, I'm, I'm missing a leg. What am I going to do? Oh, John, here's a chair. Oh, John, here's a coffee. Oh, John, here's your food, right? And then you get comfortable in this like, oh, everyone's going to help me. So let me act a little bit more weaker instead of, hey, man, let's figure out how to keep you on a healthy diet. Hey, man, are you meditating? Hey, guy, are you keeping your mental health healthy while you're recovering? I understand that you're stressed out on uh, everything that's going on currently, but what are you doing to move forward? And that is a key as to how I've gotten out of these. These last two surgeries that I've had to include my amputation in May, Devin Allen, Olympian Devin Allen is my roommate. And I cannot thank him enough. Him and Caleb Handy. Caleb Handy is my cousin. Both of them are the reason why I was able to go in there because it was like, all right, what are we going to do to get you back on the platform? What are we going to do to get you back to training? Hey, is your mental health right? Hey, are you doing this? Are you doing that? And I think that those are key things that we're missing. Instead of sitting here and being like, okay, you know what? Clay lost his job. Here's a hundred bucks, right? Let me give you another hundred bucks. Instead of being like, hey man, here's a hundred bucks, but what are we going to do to move forward? When I realized the power of that, and I realized that other people really respond to that, and you can motivate people, and you can honestly push people to a path of self-development and really getting out of this negative, toxic rut, that is when I realized my true potential. It's not about lifting the weights. Is it cool that I'm lifting weights with one leg? Sure, by all means. But that's not going to last forever. The problem we're having, Clay, is a lot of individuals tie their identity to what they're currently doing. I think that that's a mistake. I was not John the Staff Sergeant. I'm not John the Marine. I'm not John the Adaptive Athlete. I'm not John the Mental Health Advocate. I'm not John the Gay Dude. I am John who just happens to be a pro athlete, who just happens to be a mental health advocate, who just happens to be the former Marine. We need to stop getting tied on these ideas that that is our identity, which is why suicide rate is so high, which is why we, we develop these angry individuals. You think that if I didn't live in the past of the Marine Corps, I would still be angry that I'm upset or that I'm out of the service or be upset that I got treated poorly because I was gay? No, I just, I honestly, if I lived in that past or if I lived in the past of, oh, my foster parents or my biological parents didn't care for me. Are you kidding me? God put a phenomenal family in front of me that I just legally changed my last name to their last name. So if we really think back as to where my journey started and where I became vulnerable, it was because I was tired, Clay. I'm t I was tired of being angry. I was tired of living in this victim mentality. I was tired of using everything as an excuse. Why not live your true form and your true person? 
and be happy because guess what? Whether it's today or in 10 years, we're all going to die. We're all going to be at the, in the bottom of the dirt. So why not live life to the best of your abilities and be happy while doing it? Stop caring about what people think. What I keep hearing when you say John the athlete or John the Marine, what I keep hearing is John the human. And you found a community that was going to treat you as John the human which one of the aspects of treating you like a human is maintaining high standards for you and speaking hard truths to you. And when you are lingering or ruminating on a victim mentality, calling you out for that. But it's also spending time on your emotions when you need to spend time on emotions. The way I always say it is give your emotions all the time they need, but save plenty of room for kicking life in the ass. So you need both. And I think that's what you were getting at. You need the space for your emotions, but you need to kick life in the ass too. And that's a totally different ballgame. You got to find that balance. But I I love it. I agree with you that the idea is John the human, Clay the human, because one of the things I love about that is it brings us together. We're in that circle together. When you start saying John the Marine, John the professional athlete, those things separate you from me. John the human, Clay the human brings us together. And I think that's what we, I love when we keep going back to a reoccurring topic, but that's, that's what this is about. And that's what I said at the very beginning, that you now realize that the things that are going to help you move mountains are not the weights you lift. They're not the athletic success. They're not any of those things. It's the most valuable things in the world, which are the things that bring us together, like being a human being and being a father and a brother and a friend. And I love that you're hitting on those things. If someone put you in charge of military, mental health, suicide, where would you tackle the problem? Where would you start chipping away at the problem? You know, I had sent you a book called Tribe. Or I sent you an email about it. I have read Tribe. You read Tribe? I love Tribe. And if you follow Tribe's research, it'll point out that unspeakable cruelty, unspeakable violence has always been a part of human experience. Actually, it's been a much greater part of our experience in the past. Yet, it's modern society with all its medication and all of its advances and luxuries that is dealing with the highest rates ever. So what it points to is the importance of community and connection and purpose and the societies we return to do you buy that line of thought is that where you would start sharing time sharing resources connection i would honestly attack it would be the first thing it would be to end the stigma so in the service i don't know if you know this but if you say that you have mental health problems and you get sent to mental health you get treated like a not a prisoner but you get treated they take your weapons cards they remove you from like rosters of being able to drive, remove your weapon from the armory. You're an outcast. You you become outcasted. And then they send you away, they put you in the company office, and then you're known as this like suicidal individual, right? So I think that what I would start with would be ending the stigma, right? Because we need to stop acting like not everybody has a day and like not everybody has problems. The issue moving forward, I would say combat plays a major role, right? But there's not a lot of individuals that have seen combat currently in service. There's not a lot of individuals. And, and that's a thing that I've, I have felt very iffy about because, okay, we emphasize on combat veterans. But what about the individuals who never got to see combat that still go through something traumatic, right? We live this idea that PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is built on strictly combat. 
I don't believe that. There's a lot of females that have gone through sexual assault, harassment, and actually have gone through a lot of things that I went through as a gay Marine that build PTSD moments for them. And I know some of them. There's a lot of female Marines that I speak to that I served with that have episodes from being raped, from being sexually assaulted, from being belittled, from being this, right? To where we need to stop believing that post-traumatic stress or mental health really only sticks to one group. It's everyone. Everyone handles things differently. Why was I able to handle my disability, my amputation different? Because I'm not the same person as anyone else who's struggling with an amputation. We could say that I was built for this and that I was. this was the moment where I was really going to shine and show my resiliency, right? But if I wasn't mentally who I was, I may not have handled my amputation that way. And I think that that's how mental health needs to be handled because what works for John, whether it's music, meditation, drinking teas, reading books, and actually speaking my feelings may not work for Clay, may not work for David Boer, may not work for the next person to the left or your right. And I think that it's all, it's not a, it's not a book of, you know, standard operating procedure. Here's mental health. Here's how to tackle it. It goes back to being a leader and a coach where I think people forget that each individual is different. You might be able to yell at this person, but you might not be able to yell at this person because you're not going to get anything to resonate. And I think that attacking mental health, whether it's in sports or schools, or even the military, it's stop making it believe that this individual's weak because he's going through something. He's just not built the same way as the, the next person, and they're handling it as best as possible, right? And going back to tribe, community and, and reassurance and, and tribe and self-purpose is a major key. But if you're taking, listen, the Marine Corps does a very good job of making people believe that they're the best thing since sliced bread. And then when they come out, they're not the best thing since sliced bread, right? Instead of setting back and being like, hey, listen, I understand you were this Marine, but now let's transition you to a civilian. Here are your strong suits and here's what I think you need to attack. Let's reassure on these things, right? Be a little realistic because at some point we need to start bursting bubbles. You can't keep lying to people and allowing them to believe like, oh, I'm this good. When in reality, you're really not. You have some weaknesses that we all have weaknesses that we can all work through. And I think that those are, that's what fails it. And then if you go back to tribe, the VA system creates a victim mentality. Everyone's content with getting $3,000 for the rest of their year or for the, yeah, for the rest of the year, for the rest of their life, that they don't want to get another job. They, they, uh, we have a guy currently at the Adaptive Training Foundation who is missing legs, who obviously is disabled and they just threaten to take his disabilities because the guy's competing somewhere else. Are you kidding me? So the system doesn't want you to better yourself. The system doesn't want you to get out. I Listen, man, I don't want it. Listen, come find me in, in probably like two years. If you want to talk about disability, take it away from me. I need it now because I still have surgeries and, and naval medicine messed me up. And now I'm missing a leg because of them. But I don't I never planned on banking on this. I didn't want I went to college. I just graduated. I got a different job. You know, I've, I've, I've coached. I've gotten a job. I worked at Nike. I, I've done if I have to figure out how to make as much money as I did in service, I was going to figure it out. But a lot of people don't believe that. And that goes back to instead of really talking about how we're going to move you forward, we're just going to give you all this medication and do the research on the medication because it contradicts itself. They give you PTSD medication, then they give you bipolar medication, right? Then they give you antidepressants. So you're living on this roller coaster of emotions that one day that when you're not on the medication, you're sad. And then that's your moment. That's your moment when you commit suicide. Instead of really being like, let's find out what your strong suits are. Or look at that. You're a really good snowboarder. Maybe we should get you into snowboarding. Oh, look at that. You're a really good swimmer. Maybe we should get you into a rec league of swimming. Nobody's saying that you have to be an Olympic athlete. No one's saying you have to be a pro athlete. 
But what we're saying is for mental health, attacking it, we need to find each person's purpose. Maybe it's motivational speaking. Maybe it's writing a book. Maybe it's coming up with your own coffee brand. Who knows? But we're not doing that. Instead, we're giving everyone medication and we're giving them endless disability that's creating this victim mentality. And and then the third thing is the stigma. You talk about mental health. Oh, that's a no-no. Let me tell you something. I'm 245 pounds. I'm an Olympic weightlifter. I am an adaptive CrossFit CrossFit athlete. All right. You already described what I look like. If I'm crying, I promise you, no one's going to come up to me and be like, oh, he's a big baby because we're going to have other words. Me showing vulnerability and me showing honesty about what life really is goes back to being a human. And I think that those are the major things that we need to hit in order to attack what we've got going on. Yeah, well, we're certainly not going to solve veteran mental health today, but I love the initial thought of a great coach and mentor of mine used to say that a great coach recognizes whether a player needs a pat on the ass or a kick on the ass very quickly. And I think that's kind of what you were saying is everyone needs to be treated differently. You know, what works for you, what works for me. I think that's a a great thought. Let's get into your injury a bit. Losing your leg is a story in itself. You were hit by a drunk driver by walking down the street in 2016, but you actually didn't make the decision to amputate until many years later. Walk us through that accident and then the sequence of events that led to you making the decision to amputate. So I will tell you, I made the decision to amputate prior to getting out of service. I did not want to come into the civilian world and have to deal with this. I heard the horror stories of the VA. I heard the horror stories of, you know, the medical side of things. And TRICARE may not be the best thing, but it's paid for. So my biggest fear was to come out here and have a big bill, right, to have to pay out of pocket. So initially what happened, I got hit by a drunk driver. I don't remember the incident. I just remember seeing lights, somebody yelling, and then I wake up in the hospital. So I recovered pretty well. Um, I was, I've was i always been a healthy individual. I recovered pretty well, except for I had this pain in my from my knee below. So like my shin and my ankle. I had this pain of running, but of course, marine mentality, right? Oh, suck it up, you know? And in my mind, I had gone through something traumatic. So I was like, this is probably something that I'm going to live with for the rest of my life. And especially having hardware, I had heard the horror stories of like climate change and you being able to sense the environment around you, you know, the elements and all that. So I was in the process of changing my job in the Marine Corps uh, because I was fed up with what I told you, what I went through in the tank community. And I did a medical evaluation and they had seen holes in my ankle. So the doctor was like, hey, I need to recommend you to go to like San Diego. So if you know Navy medicine, I had a trauma of like going to see another doctor. I've had medical records lost. Like there's a ton of medical records and surgeries that were lost in in my record. So I told the doctor, I said, well, can you do it? And he was like, well, I can, but a lot of people don't want me to do it is what he told me. And I was like, well, I don't want to go anywhere. Let's get it done here. If you can get it done, then let's figure it out. So he started doing and the this surgery. is an amputation. No, this is a, so I've had lower extremity reconstruction surgeries is what it is. So they go in there and hardware, cadaver, cartilage, you name it. And they try to fix it. Right. So what happened, they went in there and my body rejected the first cadaver that they put in me. So they did an MRI and there was a knot that the hole kept getting bigger and bigger. They kept trying to repair it. The time frame that I had hit the problem in the service is you get six months to recover from an injury. 
If you don't recover, you get a, to put in another request and you get an additional six months, but that's it. You get a 12 month period to recover. If not, you're on a PEB for separation. And then that's it. I was like, wow, dude, my time came up. And in that 12 month period of recovery, I had eight surgeries. So it was like I was having a surgery, trying to recover two weeks later, back, back under the knife. And then they were pumping so much medication and narcotics in me, my appendix bursted. That should tell you how many surgeries I was having, right? So I was known first name basis in the hospital. And, you know, I went on a PB for separation. John, are these all due to the rejection of your body rejection, rejecting the surgeries, the metal and the cadaver? The metal, cadaver, everything. My body was just rejecting it. So finally, they came out with an idea to use bone from myself. From my, I think it was like my foot, my knee, they took some bone out and then they tried to put it on my ankle. It didn't work. So I made the decision to walk away. I was like, I'm going to get out and I'm going to take care of myself and figure this out, right? Well, I kind of cheated the system because everyone thought I was getting out. But in reality, I had taken a contract as an active duty reservist and I got orders to Germany. Nobody knew about it. I, I met a captain who had the connections and... Long story short, I ended up in Germany. There was no physical, like, really work that I needed to do. So I was fine. I was an anti-terrorist officer. I was working in an office, like, X, Y, and Z, right? So we go on a run, and my leg gives out pretty bad. I go to do an MRI. There's a bunch of holes. Think of, like, uh, Swiss cheese. There's a bunch of holes all going all up through my leg. And that's when the Marine Corps was like, listen, man, we're pretty fed up with like (laughs) your medical stuff. We're going to send you to Maryland for you to wait for your medical separation and have another surgery. So I come to Baltimore. Well, I come to the Naval Academy. John, can I ask you this? Is this typical? Were you really unlucky or this is it's common for bodies to reject over and over again? Or was there some sort of a mistake being made? No, this is just my body not reject. My body was just just really unlucky. I know a lot of people, yeah, I have a lot of people who have had cadaver replacements and hardware and even Achilles tendons. They've had tendons replacements and they've had no issue. For me, it was just my body did not, it did not accept anything that wasn't mine. So I came to the Naval Academy. I got stationed here waiting for separation. I had surgery number 12 and I had this, this thing, man. It's called a surgical halo. It's like screws going through my leg. It's got rings around it. They did not give me antibiotics and I caught an infection, bone and tissue staph infection. And this, my, my dad was stationed in Fort Benning. So I went home to go recover with my family. And that's when they realized they didn't give me antibiotics. My mom was at an event and that's when she told someone like, hey, John's at the house. He's got an infection. We don't have antibiotics and the VA and TRICARE won't, won't see him here because he's over in Maryland. So my mom, my parents' neighbors were these Australians that were stationed in Fort Benning and they were like, oh, my daughter just had a surgery. She's got these 800 milligram antibiotics. You can give them to him. So they bring them to me and that's what sustained me. COVID happened, Clay. And I was put on standby for anything medical related, Right. So luckily, Kenny Main, ESPN reporter, paid for a prosthetic that I was wearing during COVID that was specifically designed for individuals with my condition. If it wasn't for him, Clay, I would have been 
immobile. I would have been in a wheelchair. How did, how did that come about? How did that so come about? You got to tell that story. There was a family in Annapolis that had seen what I was doing for all the students. And they were like, John, we need to put you in contact with this individual. I think that this device works for, would work for you. It's called the Ideo Exosim. And I wasn't positive about it, Clay. I had already been through so many surgeries and seen so much medical that I was like, this, this device isn't going to work for me. And they put me in touch with Kenny Main. Kenny Main contacted Ryan Blank, who's the creator of the Ideo Exosim. And I sent them videos, my medical record and all this other stuff. And they're like, no, you're a perfect fit. So I went, I got fitted and it actually worked for me. Unfortunately, I had so much neurological damage that, yeah, I was able to walk, but I still, when I would take it off, had excruciating pain, right? So that's when this is ironic because my mentor is actually Alex Smith. He's the quarterback. He's the former quarterback for the Redskins. And Alex Smith went through something very traumatic, 17 surgeries. He almost lost his leg. He caught an infection. I had never related with someone. And we were watching each other's journey. So finally, fast forward, I went into medical. This is when COVID started to die out a little bit. And I went to medical. And my idea was, hey, where are we at? Like, are we going to move forward with my medical stuff? Like, you guys kind of left me on standby. So the doctor comes in, it's a brand new doctor, doesn't know who I am, looks at my chart and he goes, all right, here's the plan. We're going to, we're going to take a piece of bone from your hips and use that to repair your leg. And I was like, we're not doing that. And he was like, well, why not? And I said, so you want me to recover from hip surgery and leg surgery that puts me immobile for probably a year. And he was like, oh, well, we don't have another option. I said, I'm not doing that. Mind you, I had already been training with Devin Allen, Morgan Mitchell. I had already been training with uh, Joe Delgado. He's another guy who was trying to go to the Olympics here in Annapolis. So my mindset was already set to compete again because of the device that Kenny made paid for. So then my original surgeon was there. She comes in and she goes, oh, John, how you been? I'm like, look, doc, I've been great, but we need to talk about this. He wants to do another lower extremity reconstruction surgery. I'm not doing that. Clay, she was so anti-amputation. And I was like, you're going to sit here and look at me in the eyes and tell me why you're against amputation. And she goes, you're too young. Clay, I, I flipped out when she said I was too young. I was like, okay, so John Patterson, who was a guy I went to boot camp with, who lost his leg probably like a year after we joined boot camp. I was like, so he wasn't too young? I was like, what about Tim Brown? He's a triple amputee. And I started naming amputees like you're telling me I'm too young for an amputation. And finally, listen, man, God gave me the power to really put my points out there and speak clearly about how I felt with emotions. And the nurse was or the doctor was like, is this what you want? I said, yes, doc. I was like, in, in four years, when you see my face at the Olympics, I said, remember that you making this decision and helping me get here is what helped me get to the Olympics. Well, it sounds like the conversation should have been centered around whether or not it would help. And it sounds like your leg was just deteriorating. And I don't it know was. why age would even come into play. It's like, is my leg deteriorating? Is it going to get better? And I can imagine your emotional journey over, at this point, I think eight surgeries had to be really No, taxing. I was at 12. I was at 12. You were at 12 at this 12 point. Surgeries. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, So I was emotionally taxed. 
Let me ask you a couple more questions and we'll wrap this out. One of the things that I'm thinking about as I hear you describe that is your power of belief. You're telling them you're going to be in the Olympics even though your leg is literally deteriorating underneath you. And I pick that up from you pretty early on, that you have this rare ability to believe in yourself, to persevere in the face of adversity. However, I know through that period and throughout your entire life, you have to also deal with doubt and insecurity. You're not immune from that. So what are your strategies for thriving and finding that belief in the face of adversity, in the face of doubt, in the face of insecurity? I'm a firm believer, Clay, that God honestly put me through what I went through my entire life for this specific trait that you're talking about. I never really thought about having to, like, to me, what I was doing wasn't being resilient. It wasn't adversity. To me, it was living, trying to figure out, am I going to have a place to sleep? Am I going to have something to eat? So for me, belief and faith has been, my faith has been very, very roller coaster wise emotionally because when I was a kid, I blamed God for everything. I, you know, why am I not with a family that's loving and why is this and why that? It wasn't until these last two, three years, mainly these last two years, Clay, I started to see a lot of blessings. A lot of blessings. Kenny Maine's prosthetic being one of them. Devin Allen becoming one of my best friends and he's one of the best hurdlers in the nation. Alex Smith. I've been put in such a unique dynamic of individuals that in all honesty should have never happened. If I would have stayed in service, I would have never met any of these professional athletes. I would have never met all these individuals that mean the world to me. If I would have never gotten out of my childhood, I would have never met the military. I probably would still have a limb. So for me, it's been hard believing in God and being gay. If you look at Colton Underwood's Netflix documentary, he touched on something very, very close in to my heart because I don't have a relationship with the church. For me, it's my relationship with, is with God. And what I've told my best friend Lauren from Annapolis is if I was built wrong or a sinner per se, I don't believe that God would be giving me the blessings that he gave me. Me coming to Dallas was a blessing in disguise that really helped open up my athletic career. I've met some really good people. I've done a lot of interviews. I've done a lot of podcasts. I've gotten a lot of media attention. If I was wrong, whether it's my sexuality, whether it's who I am as a person, whether it's my disability, I don't believe that everything would be lining up. And I call David Vabora very daily to be like, oh my God, this is what's happening. And I mentioned the following day, like, oh my God, this just occurred. You know, oh my God, this just occurred, right? So Clay, honestly, it's the way that the journey has all aligned on its own that really makes me believe that what I'm doing is correct. And it's not been one or two instances. It's, I don't have a number to tell you. I believe that I was supposed to go through everything that I went through because there's nothing in this world that can break me. Will I shed a tear? Probably, but I will figure it out. Will it keep me, you know, down and, and, and sit here and I'll be like, oh, I can't achieve this? Absolutely not. It's not a matter of whether I go. It's 
giving myself grace of understanding that I will try my hardest to get to where I need to go. And that's more important to me than anything other in the world, right? So if we start to look back and think of the journey and the belief, and I just, Clay, I can honestly tell you, like you and I meeting, that was that was meant to happen, right? Because of what you're trying to do with your platform and my story. You've been aligned to certain individuals to be able to tell the story in, in, in a unique manner, right? Because I've done podcasts. I've never felt in a way where I can manipulate these questions to how I want to answer them. It's always, well, tell me about your, you know, your sexuality. Tell me about the Marine Corps. So for me, it's not... It's not something that I have to really fight to believe. I just, I see it firsthand, Clay. I see everything that's aligning in my life, in my, whether it's my parents, I truly found my home with my family, you know, my boss, my, my boss at the time, who's my father now, his wife, my brothers, like, Clay, I've never had people support me the way that my family supports me. And I didn't grow up with them. I only, I was only with them since my accident, Right. And then I felt that the right thing to do was to change my last name to their last name. And, you know, David Vibora, keep him close. That's my older brother, man. And it's funny because a lot of people seek David Vibora for advice. But there's times where David Vibora calls me to give him reassurance and to give him that slap in the ass that people need. Everything that I'm doing is aligning. Does it give me anxiety that I'm getting all this attention and speaking about my trauma and all this? Yes, but that's natural. The kid that you brought to ATF Clay, that's what makes me drive to continuously do this. I'm not doing it. With, may I impact some adults? Yeah, but some adults have already lived their life. We need to focus on our children of tomorrow. We need to figure out how to touch those individuals that are currently going through something. I believe that if I wasn't meant to do this, this wouldn't align the way that it is. From your podcast to having an interview with ESPN, from speaking in front of the head coaching staff of the Cowboys and every other platform that I've done, I truly believe that I am where I'm supposed to be. I think it's an extraordinary gift to have that sense of gratefulness in the face of what you've been through and are still going through. That's a gift. And I think to share that gratefulness and be outwardly open about what you're grateful of, despite what you're going through, is important and i also think it's wild that moments that seem like enormous setbacks or injustices at the time can oftentimes lead to your biggest successes you know you mentioned david bobora if you knew how how we came together you would even think it's even wilder because it was one of my greatest setbacks that put me on a path to meet david and to have him come on and do my podcast very early on in this journey and I think it's just interesting that some of the greatest injustices, setbacks, whatever you want to call them in your life, put you on this path to where you're called to be and put you on a path that allows you to now use those scars and use the that uniqueness as an asset to help others heal. I have one more question for you, and you really already answered it, but I'll let you end on it. You know, we've spoke a lot about David He's the founder of ATF. He's been on the podcast. If you're listening, go back and listen to that episode because it's amazing. He speaks about your true north and about keeping your focus on your greater purpose throughout your journey. Elaborate a little more on what you feel is your true north today. So, Clay, my true north for me, mental health. Mental health. I love being an athlete. I love being at these events and doing what I'm doing. 
but all that's going to end at some point. I have to, I, I can't not help individuals. There are a lot of men that have been sexually assaulted. There are a lot of men that are struggling with sexuality. There's a lot of women that both male and, and females that have gone through childhood traumas. I think it's time to see vulnerability. I think my true north, north for me is opening up uncomfortable conversations and allowing people to understand that no matter what is thrown at you, you can overcome it. I just had my 14th surgery. I could easily be down in the dumps, but in all honesty, I, I'm ready to, I'm, I'm headed to train right after this call. You know, I have six weeks of focusing strictly on my mental health, my meditation, my reading, my fundamentals of stuff while I'm immobile. The Olympics is a big portion of what I'm training for. The adaptive CrossFit Games is a big portion of what I'm training for, but it's just as important for me to get the word out for mental health. John, I just want to end by thanking you and I'll reiterate again how grateful I am and mindful I am that many of the topics we touched on today are weighty experiences in your life and I appreciate you speaking about it. I think your willingness to do that is going to impact and influence some people in a positive light. So thank you so much for being here, buddy. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me, Cliff.